continuing our study through what has been labeled the Sermon on the Mount. What I'd like to do this morning is start off by linking what has been covered already with what is yet to come and what where we're at today and then build where we're at today to try to bring it all to understanding. Before we do though, let's have a word of prayer and then I'll explain exactly a little more carefully why I'm doing what I'm doing. Lord, help us as we open your text this morning that we will be reminded again and again that our salvation is of you and from you. It is through you and it is to you that you will receive glory forever and ever. Amen. Help us because we too often will fall into that trap of thinking that our salvation is for us and to us and somehow through us. And it is not. It is you working on us. You coming to us. And it is all for your glory. So help us to understand this this morning as we continue our study in Matthew chapter 5. Open our eyes to see and cause us to be amazed at the great salvation that you have wrought. In your name I pray. Amen. I've had several people, a number of people, both people online as well as people face-to-face, who have talked to me about the message, the study we've been going through in Matthew chapter 5. And uh, in some cases, there have been disagreement with me on, on the topic and how I'm approaching the text. And I get that. Um, I certainly understand that disagreement that some have had um, because certainly a number of the things I've been saying are outside of at least modern traditional views of, that te- of this text. And if you remember, right when we got into Matthew chapter 5, one of the things I said about Matthew chapter 5 is when we address the Beatitudes... Uh, what is called the Beatitudes, is that the church in modern history has, in a very real way, I feel, I believe, not feel, I believe, has misunderstood the text. This is why we call them the Beatitudes, because we think it's telling us what we need to do. But it is not, as we talked about before. But I want to clarify and bring that a little bit more in stark clarity for you and I, because it may have been missed because although I talked about the background of the text, it was before the controversy came up in the text. And so it would be very easy to miss that context that was explained once the controversy or the disagreement came up about whether they're really Beatitudes or if they're really the times of blessing as we talked about them um, several weeks ago. I want to remind you, and I hope this brings clarity, I want to remind you that Matthew 5 gets its context through what takes place in Matthew chapter 4. And this becomes important because it's, it's going to help us understand this text we have to look at today. In Matthew chapter 4, one of the key, if not the key passage that gives the background, the context, and the clues to interpretation to Matthew 5 through 7 is found in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Very important text. Let me read it to you again. From, time, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he's been preaching about the kingdom of heaven. He's declaring it at hand. And when he, by the way, I didn't mention this necessarily when we first started out in chapter 5, but when he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what he's referring to, what do you think he's referring to when he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand? He's referring to himself. Because he's the king of the kingdom of heaven. 
So the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's referring to himself. He's at hand. He's in their midst. He's in their presence. As the king. As the Messiah. As the Redeemer. And so the key understanding is found in verse 7. When he, 17, I'm sorry, when he says from that time and the time he's referencing is everything that comes before this, chapters 1 through 4, uh, 16, but specifically it's when he's an adult. Um, after, you know, you find chapter 3 where John the Baptist is preaching, uh, crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. And then Jesus gets baptized, end of chapter 3. Jesus goes out into the wilderness and is tempted. When he returns, starting in verse 12 and following, he begins to preach and he begins to heal to, to validate his, his message. It's a demonstration of the valid, validity of his message that he's preaching. And his primary focus from 17 onwards is he's preaching a message of simple one word, which is repentance. He's preaching a word of repentance. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That brings us down to chapter 5. We must think of the message, this first major message of Jesus, it's based upon what it says in verse 17 of chapter 4. He's preaching a message that is purely and simply containing the idea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's chapter 5-7, through seven, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount. It's preaching this. He tells us that's what he's preaching, doesn't he? In 4.17, isn't that exactly what he says he's preaching? Exactly what he says he's preaching is repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So that means what he's doing in 5-7 through seven is he's preaching repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's, he's starting out, it's a, it, there's your twofold outline, isn't it? Your twofold outline is repent, kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what is he going to do 5-7? through seven? He's going to preach repentance and he's going to preach about himself. The king of the kingdom. Make sense? That's what Matthew 5-7 through is all about. So when we come through to chapter 5, verses 1-12, through the Beatitudes, I'm just being a quick survey here. What is Jesus doing? Well, the problem is, if I were, just forget the Sermon on the Mount for a second, if I were to come here and say to you, ladies and gentlemen, no, let me change the subject. Change the context. If I went out to the center of Royersford and I went over, what's the name of that one restaurant that everybody's lined up on? Not Main Street, the other, Anne Marie's. If I go outside of Anne Marie's where people are usually lined up and I just stand there and say, ladies and gentlemen, repent. Everybody there is either going to blow me off and ignore me or they're going to ask me a question. What's the question anyone would ask in that, in that statement? Of what? Correct. That would be the obvious question. If they don't, live, if they don't turn, tune me out and mock me and ridicule me and just try to drive me away, the only real question they're going to ask is what? Of what? Of what? Repent of what? Well, that's the point of 1 through 12. He's, he's not 
It, says, it doesn't say here in 4.17 that the, that the message is three points. Repent, do good things, kingdom of heaven is at hand. Does it say that? It doesn't say that, does it? Does it say repent? Point one. Point two. Follow the law. Point three. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Does it say that? It doesn't say that, does it? It's two points. Repent. Kingdom of heaven's at hand. Right? If that's the point, then that's what we should look for in 5 through 7. So what Jesus is in effect doing in not just verse 2, verse 3, actually, verse 3 through 12, but actually verse 3 through, 4, or through 16, what is Jesus doing? Is he preaching in 3 through 16? Is he preaching the kingdom of heaven's at hand? Or is he preaching repent? It's got to be one of the two. That's what he said he's preaching on. Repent. How is he doing it? Well, in order, to, in order for Jesus to say repent, just like I would have to say outside Anne Marie's, if I said repent, they're going to ask me, if they're listening, they're going to say, of what? So what does Jesus do? From chapter 5, verse 3 through, 17, or through 16, he does what? This is what you need to repent of. Because why? God's standard is what, Ken? Perfect. Absolute perfection, right? His standard is absolute perfection. And so what Jesus is doing in, in three, 5, 3 through 12 is He's saying there are blessings if you have absolute perfection in this area. And anybody who's really listening is going to say what? If the Spirit's at work in their heart, they're going to say, that's not me. That is not me. Well, you need to have something to repent from as well as repent to. And that's exactly what his outline is, right? Repent from sin and repent to God, the King of the kingdoms at hand. Repent from and to. Does that make sense? And so that's what's taking place in 3 through 12. It continues in 13 through 16. It's just there's a break because he presents it in a different way. They are salt, but what has happened to them? They become tasteless. It's lost its tastiness. They are light, but they're what? They're walking around underneath a basket. Does that make sense? That's the point. And so at, at 16, when you come to 16, where we were at last week, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your works, your good works, and give glory to your Father who's in heaven, we must think about that statement once again like we were thinking about it from 3 through 12. God's standard is what again? Absolute perfection. And so he's saying in, in an absolutely perfect way, let your light shine. Well, Bummer for the hearers, right? Right? Because they can't do that. They're hopeless. That's the whole point. The need for repentance, 4.17, is being exposed in verse 3 through 16. Does that make sense? Now, Jesus isn't done doing that. He is not at all done doing that. In fact, He's just getting started. But now he's going to start talking about briefly what? 
he's going to shift to the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's referring to himself. That's six or 17 through 20, which we're going to be at today. Now, intertwined in this is going to be, now what he's doing is he's bringing himself, the, king, the, the, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and the call to repentance is now going to become dramatically interwoven in 16 through 20. And I just kind of just gave away the entirety of the text. If you understand this, the text should start to make sense in 16 to 20, or 17 through 20. Again, repentance and the, the, the kingdom of heaven is at hand is now going to become dramatically interwoven. And then from 21 onward, he's going to, in case there is any, and he knows there is, in case there is any residual, I'm good to go in existence still among the hearers, he's going to absolutely and utterly dismantle it from 21 and following. Pretty much to the end of chapter 7. He's going to dismantle all of the false thinking every step of the way. But our key for the text this morning is 17 through 20. That's where we're going to focus. But before I get there, I just want to make sure, does everyone understand what I just said? The way I just described it. I just want to make sure it's understood what we just talked about because that's really important. 17 through 20, a couple things I want to say about 17 to 20 before we actually read the text together. Firstly, we must not do what most people have done all through the ages. They've taken this text and, and, and disconnected it from its context. We must not do that. We must see 17 through 20 in light of what we just discovered in 4:17 all the way through chapter 5, verse 14. Or, I'm sorry, verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 16. We must see it in light of all those things. Now, we just try to do that briefly. But interestingly enough, because people have struggled, and it's a tough, this is an interesting text. Six, 17 through 20 is an interesting text. And it has been debated by theologians and argued about within the theological realms for hundreds and hundreds, even thousand, a thousand years or more. What is going on in this text? And it's complicated. It's complicated because of some of the vast vista ways in which, which uh, the, the, the speech is given. It's also complicated in the fact that it seems to be totally different from everything it's connected to. In fact, there are some theologians who have argued that, that, that verses 17 to 20 really was not part of the Sermon on the Mount. But actually, it was something from somewhere else that Matthew just put into this Sermon on the Mount passage. Some have argued not only that, but some have argued that not only is it something that, that Jesus said somewhere else, but it's actually four or five different things that Jesus said in four or five different places, and Matthew just took it and stuck it in here because he felt like it fit there. Or if they're halfway decent theologians, they'd say because the Spirit wanted him to put it there. I, just, I, I reject that completely. This is absolutely connected. I think when we see it correctly, it's going to make major sense and it's, it comes from 417 it's going to explain it it's going to help us understand where jesus is going where he came from where he's going in his in his message here think about it this way as we work our way through the text think about it this way if what i'm saying is correct about chapter 5 verses 1 through 16 connected to 417 if what i'm saying is correct that is not beatitudes but instead it's given as the time of blessing as we talked about before this is the time of blessing it's a time when you are to receive the blessing that was promised to you from the time that the book of deuteronomy was given to you when the law was given at the second time that moses gave it to you 
if that is true, and I believe it is, and if it is true that nobody measured up, and I believe it is, clearly, theologically, nobody would measure up. If you were the hearer of this message, chapter 5, verse 3 through 16, and if you're thinking and getting what he's trying to say, you know something about yourself, don't you? What do you know about yourself? You're condemned. You are not just partly condemned, you're completely condemned. Your good works, your areas of perhaps quasi-faithfulness to the law amounts to what? Nothing. And as a matter of fact, it even serves to condemn you further. So if you're hearing this, chapter 5, verses 3 through 16, you have to come away thinking something. You have to come away thinking, first of all, I'm doomed. I'm condemned. Number two, you have to be coming away thinking, this can't be all. There must be more. There must be hope somewhere. Because remember, these people who are hearing this believe in God. They believe in the promises of God. They believe in the character of God, even though it was skewed in a variety of places. They worship God. They revered Him. Did they not? At some level, they did. And it was probably a pretty substantial level. They did. So you had to come away thinking, there's got to be hope somewhere. Because all He just did is totally destroy us. We're condemned. We have no hope. This was the time of blessing. And if we're not able to be blessed in the promised time of blessing, the only hope we have is to be cursed. Because that's the Old Testament Deuteronomic plan. It's either blessing or it's cursing. So if we cannot be blessed, and He made it very clear that we cannot be blessed, then all we have left is the curse. If all that's left is the curse, there must be something else. There must be hope somewhere. Certainly, it would make no sense that God would promise a a Redeemer, a Messiah, if there's no hope. Does that make sense? Now, if you think it through, then suddenly 17 through 20 is going to start making a little more sense. Let's read it, and then we'll start to see. Jesus is speaking. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your, na- your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's our text for this morning. Bold, powerful, sweeping statements of Jesus. He references himself. He references the scribes and Pharisees. He references obedience. He references disobedience. He references the law. 
He references His role. He references eternality. He references approach to the law. You see how it's really complicated and complex? The powerful statements He makes here. I want you to notice for the first time in the message, He turns from the use. Well, first of all, 3 through 12, the those, to the use, 14 through 17, through 16. And in verse 17, for the first time, he turns to I. For the first time, he turns to himself. But he also addresses them first, doesn't he? Jesus, being God, knows how they're thinking, correct? He knows what's going on in their heart. And so what does he say? He opens up verse 17. Do not, it's an emphatic, do not think I, Jesus, Messiah. He's been proclaiming himself already to be the king of the, of the, of the heavens, right? The king of the kingdom of the heavens. The Messiah. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. First of all, real quick, just meanings of words. Abolish literally means to, to destroy its most common usage was in the destruction of a building, the tearing down of a building. The removal, the destruction and tearing down and removal of, of, of any, any building that has ceased its functionality anymore. It's not functional anymore. You tear it down, you destroy it, you remove it. He says, do not think something. And the reason why he says do not think is because they're thinking. What are they thinking about? What did he just say? There's got to be Hope. There, he, he certainly, God certainly didn't cut the covenant at Mount Sinai for us for no purpose. It makes sense, doesn't it? He certainly didn't do it for no purpose. He certainly had to have a purpose, and it certainly had to be an eternal purpose. There has to be something here. There has to be hope somewhere. So, the natural thought process is, if you think about it, if verses 3 through 16, I don't measure up, I don't have a hope of measuring up, I've never measured up, not one moment in my life have I ever measured up to God's absolute perfection standards. Well, then the, other, the only other possibility would be what? That Jesus would do what? If he truly is the Messiah. That he, no, that's not their idea that he would redeem us at this point. That they would, that Jesus would what? Remove the law. Right? And that makes sense, doesn't it? If, I, if the law, this is really silly, but if the law in America says you must not breathe, you cannot breathe, it's a violation of the law if you breathe, your only hope is that they change the law real quick, right? Real quick. Because if they don't change the law real quick, you're going to what? You're doomed. So the natural thought process, if they're listening to what Jesus really is saying in, one, in 3 through 16, is to say what? Maybe if Jesus is who He says He is, maybe He's come to tell us, on the one hand, you haven't fulfilled the law, but the good news is, we're going to take it away. You don't have to worry about it. We'll tear it apart. We'll tear it away and throw it away. Because you, not only didn't you, but you can't. That makes sense, doesn't it? So Jesus' opening statement after thoroughly dismantling any hope they had is what? He just ratchets it down even tighter, doesn't he? 
He tightens down the screws even more by saying what? Don't you dare think something that I know you're all thinking. Don't you dare think that I came to tear down the law. Don't you dare think that I came to declare that the law no longer has any purpose. And so it just needs to be torn down and hauled away. Could I just pause this for a second? This is really important. And it may, it may really rattle some of you. I hear a lot of Christians who will make a statement. I am so glad that I don't, what? You think? Live under the law anymore. That, that were New Testament Christians versus Old Testament people who had to live under the law. Could I just submit to you that that is a gross misunderstanding of the law? It's a gross misunderstanding of Jesus' teachings about the law? It's a gross misunderstanding of the entirety of the Old Testament and New Testament. I hear people take it one step further and say, I am so glad that we're no longer under the law, but now we're under grace. Now at one level, I get that. But that's not what they're referring to is what I get what, they, what, what, what is correct biblically is not what they're referring to. What they're referring to, quite to the contrary, is that no longer does all the Old Testament law have anything to do with us. But that's not what Jesus is saying. It's not even close. Jesus never said, I came, and nor did Paul ever say this as well, by the way, if you really read carefully. And a lot of people get it confused when it gets to the statements in the New Testament about circumcision. But nowhere does Jesus say the law is dismantled. It doesn't say that. Jesus never says that. Paul never said that. The law has been dismantled and hauled away has no purpose anymore. I find a vast swath of Christianity doesn't know anything about the Old Testament because of this er grotesquely erroneous view. It's horrifying. This is not what Jesus says. Quite to the contrary, Jesus says something dramatically opposite of that. He starts it off in verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of prophets. I've not come to dismantle it. I've not come to tear it down. I've not come to haul it away. That's not what he said. He said, I didn't do that. Don't you dare think that for a moment. I'm not going to let you skate away from this. That's what he says to them. I'm not letting you avoid verse 3 of chapter 5 through verse 16. You must face this. That's what Jesus is saying. You have to face this. It's unalterable. I'm not tearing it down. I'm not hauling it away. Nor is anyone else. That's what he says. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or prophets. And then to make it even more clear, in verse 17 he says, I have not come to abolish them, but to what? To fulfill them. Now, a lot of Christians, once again, when they get to the end of verse 17, and you hear, I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill, they make fulfill mean, again, that because He fulfilled them, they're abolished. But that's not what He says. He says, I did not come to abolish, 
but to fulfill. What we wanted to say, so desperately wanted to say, I didn't really come to fulfill them, but I came to, uh, to, to, to abolish them, but to fulfill them, but the result of me fulfilling them is that they're abolished. That's what Christians want to have the statement say. I didn't, but I did fulfill them, and therefore they're abolished. But that's not what he says, does he? We want to add the third part in there, but he only gives us two. I did not come to abolish them, but quite to the contrary, I came to fulfill them. Now, I talked about what abolish means. Now we need to talk about what fulfill means. Because if we understand fulfill correctly, then the whole point becomes much more clear. When he says, I did not come to abolish, to tear down, to destroy, to haul away, never to be useful or valuable again, which is the idea of abolish. And we all understand that ultimately about abolish, right? I mean, there are lots of laws that are no longer on the books. Why? Because they were for a point in time, they served their purpose, and that point in time has passed, and so now we don't need that law in the book anymore. And a good lawmakers will remove those books, right? Or those laws, right? Because they have no use anymore. And so they are abolished. But the point of fulfill becomes really interesting. When Jesus says he came to fulfill the law, most people jump to one understanding or the other. They don't jump to both. And I would present to you they are both. So I'm going to give you both understandings to fulfill, and we need to understand it as both. When he says, I came to fulfill the law, he's referring firstly that the laws, God's standards, the lawmaker's standards is what again? Absolute perfection. And if it's absolute perfection, then anybody who ceases or seeks to follow the law to fulfill the law means therefore to be obedient to the law. They would have to keep it, how? Perfectly. And not just perfectly at a point in time. They would have to keep it perfectly from the, the moment they're born to the moment they die. And it's not just parts of the law they, they keep perfectly, but they need to keep all of it perfectly. Correct? To actually fulfill it. It has to be kept perfectly from birth to death in its entirety. So it's in the entirety of one's life and the entirety of the law itself for the law to be fulfilled. That's one meaning of the word fulfilled here, and it's a correct meaning. Jesus did not come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. And he did. From the time he was born to the time he died, he did what with the law? Kept it absolutely perfectly. He never violated an aspect of the law. Now, some would argue he did because like he healed on the Sabbath, and he points out, no, the truth of the matter is, is, the, is man made for the Sabbath or is the Sabbath made for man? And he explains that whole process. And they were thinking wrongly. They were 180 degrees out of phase with the biblical understanding of the law. So he was keeping it, and what is he doing? He's exposing them to the reality that they have what? They're not keeping it. Exactly. So on the one hand, when he says, I've come to fulfill the law, it means I've come, I've come to perfectly follow the entirety of the law from the time I was born the time I died. Number one. The other aspect of fulfillment, though, is even more important. The other aspect of the fulfillment of the law is the idea 
that from Jesus' perspective, and of course, as being God, He's the lawgiver, the law's purpose is to do what? Well, yes, it's to condemn, but it's also another purpose is to what? Yes, but it's also to point to Christ. It's to point to Him. The entirety of the law does what? It points to Him. It is introducing Jesus. From 1,400 years before Jesus was born on this planet, it is pointing to the coming Messiah. Every word, every sentence, every paragraph in the law is all pointing to Him. So in in fulfilling the law, He's fulfilling what the law's purpose is. To point to Him. As what? As the Redeemer. That's exactly what Jesus does on the road to Emmaus, doesn't He? As He's walking on the road to Emmaus with the disciples, and they're moaning and groaning and lamenting that, that Jesus had been crucified and He's dead, He looks at them, and the very first thing he says is what to them? Oh, anybody remember? Oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That's what he says. And then it goes on and it says that the whole time they were on the road to Emmaus, he does what? He explains the law and prophets to them. Now, do you think in explaining the law and prophets that Jesus was just saying, well, you know, the Sabbath meant, and, you know, it's the sixth day of the week, and it starts at this time, and it ends at this time. You think that's what he's doing? That wasn't what he's doing. The scriptures dis- describe what he's doing. He's so- showing them as he opens up the Old Testament to them for three and a half hours on the road to Emmaus or longer. And he's explaining what to them? He's explaining that he is the fulfillment of the law. That the law pointed to him. That the law's purpose, yes, you're right, was to condemn them because they couldn't keep it up, but it was to reveal who the Redeemer really was. It was pointing all along, not just to the need for a Redeemer, condemnation, but also that he was actually the Redeemer. And it pointed the reader, the careful reader that the Spirit would be working in, as they read the law, they'd say, Jesus. Now, you really think that's true? What I just said? Do you remember what is recorded in Hebrews? Chapter 11. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 11 real quickly. Starting in verse 23, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Listen to what's next. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth 
than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses. What was he doing? He's looking to the fulfillment. Does that make sense? He's looking to Christ, the promised Messiah. That's what he was looking for. He was looking for the fulfiller, the answer for the, for the dilemma, not just the dilemma, the absolute doom that every single person that ever lived was facing. The answer was Jesus. So he was looking to Christ as greater riches than all the riches of Egypt. Jesus also said to the Pharisees, he said, you search the scriptures. It was in Matthew. You search the scriptures because you think you'll find salvation there. And you miss the point that it's all doing what? Talking to me. It's all talking about me. It's pointing to me. And you miss that completely. So when he says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, that's what he's talking about. Yes, he perfectly keeps it and therefore demonstrates himself to be the Messiah, but also he fulfills it in that all along the law was doing what? The law was, at the same time that it was a a schoolmaster condemning, it was also a billboard screaming out about the Messiah every step of the way. But the people are just hoping, whoa, but maybe he will, what, abolish the law. He, he says, no, I will not abolish the law. And now he's going to build off of this statement. And he starts it off, verse 18, by saying, for truly I say to you, and I want to stop on that for a second, that statement, for truly I say to you, that's an interesting statement. And Jesus is basically the only person who ever says, truly I say to you. Or sometimes he even says, truly, truly I say to you. He says it twice. Whenever you see him say truly or truly, truly, I say to you, those are legal words being said. He's speaking as judge here. And he is the judge. We know that to be the case. But he's speaking as a judge in this case. And he says, truly, I say to you, as a person in authority, this is what's really important, as a person in authority over you, But more importantly, in context, as a person in authority over the law, because he's a lawgiver, he says, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That's an interesting statement. If you missed it in 17... It becomes really starkly clear in verse 18. He says, as one in authority over the law, that's a bold statement by Jesus, by the way, especially this early in his ministry, as a person with authority over the law, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, and although earth will pass away, heaven will what? Will never pass away, will it? Not an iota or dot, two of the smallest parts of the Hebrew alphabet. Not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And all is accomplished is is referencing several things. All is accomplished is referencing firstly the near accomplishment which will be his what? His death. It's referencing a little bit further away from that his 
resurrection. It's referencing a little bit further away from that His ascension. But it's also referencing His what? His return as judge. That's very important. Because that's at the end of all things. It's referencing all of those. When it says, until all is accomplished, He is saying nothing in the law. Not even the smallest little part of the law will pass until all is accomplished. It's a dramatic statement. What did He just do? If you didn't think you had hope before, now what? you got major issues. Because whatever small door you has the potential to be kept open, a little crack in the door, maybe He will abolish the law and then we'll have hope. He said, no, I'm not abolishing it. And by the way, in case you missed that, not one jot or iota will, will disappear until everything is accomplished. It's there. And it will serve its purpose. Which brings us to verse 13. If all that's true, if all that is true that Jesus just declared, 17 and 18, therefore, since this is true, therefore, what does He say next? Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, in that reading, it sounds like there's a little glimpse of hope, doesn't there? Right? Sounds like there's a little glimmer. Maybe there is a crack in the door. What does he say again? If anyone or whoever relaxes the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Well, at least I'll be there. At least I'm in the kingdom of heaven, right? That sounds like, doesn't it? Except that doesn't work in the context. Because what did he do in chapter 5, verses 3 through 16? You know what he did in 5, 3 through 16? He said, None of you relaxed the least little piece. You realize that? You failed every step of the way. That's what three, 5, verses 3 through 16 says, doesn't it? You dropped it, you failed, you ignored it, you abused the law, mistreated the law, failed in your keeping of the law in every single category. That's the point of 3 through 16. You failed it in every way. If you would have just, I love his words, if you had just relaxed it a little bit, you know, you know what relaxed means? If I may just use the illustration, if you always kept the speed limit perfectly all your life, and this morning on the way to church, you went up to 56 miles an hour. And it's the only time you did it. And one time you encouraged your spouse or your friend that it's okay to be at 56. I'm just using it as an illustration. That's what it means to relax. You realize that? Relax does not mean 120. It doesn't mean 80. It means 56 in a 55. You relaxed it. Does that make sense? 
Are you tracking with me? If you did it, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, and I choose speeding because it's a pretty least one, isn't it? Especially 56. And teaches, and I'm not obviously the law and the Bible doesn't tell us about speed limits, but I'm just using it as an illustration. And teaches others to do the same will be called the least. Does that give anybody a chance? No. Not at all. And then he goes to the opposite side. But whoever does them, and the idea of does there is not, I did it today. It means it's, it's not just even characteristic. It's not what most people say, you try, which is what I hear people say on 3 through 16, all, 3 through especially thir- or 12 all the time. Well, you should be trying to do these. You need to try to do these. And what do we do? The moment we start saying we need to try to do these, we just did what? We relaxed. <laughs> but we relaxed everything. Is there, does the word try show in here anywhere? Is it implied in here? Is it hinted at? It isn't, is it? It says, but whoever does them, and the idea is ongoing, continual, and in context, it's perfection. Whoever does them and teaches them, and again, it's continual, it's accurate, and it's always will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So, the question is, to the hearers of Jesus' message here, in verse 18 and 19, specifically 19 where we are now, at the end of 19, it is this. If the hearer in Jesus' day heard verses 3-16 through and then heard the door slam shut in 17 and 18... And then here's the statement in the beginning of 19 and thinks for just a moment that maybe there is a hope for them that they'll be least in the kingdom of heaven. I'll take least versus condemnation, wouldn't you? That there may be a slight hope that all of a sudden the end of 19 comes and suddenly it starts getting a little dark again, doesn't it? And ultimately, when he says at the end of 19, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven, Who do you think Jesus is talking about? He's talking about the same one who perfectly kept 3 through 16. He's talking about himself. He is the only one who will be great in the kingdom of heaven. And in case they still miss the point, Jesus goes to verse 20. He says, For I tell you, And when he says, for I tell you, he's making a declaration. In other words, what he's saying is, the fact of the matter is, the truth is, that that statement, for I tell you, tacks directly back to truly I say to you. They're inexorably connected. For I tell you, it's almost as if he's saying again, truly I tell you, or truly I say to you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And in Jesus' day, the people that everyone looked up to as the best keepers of the law was who? 
scribes and Pharisees. Remember what, G, what, what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3? As to the law, he described himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees. He did it better than anybody else. And how does he describe all that? It was dung. It did nothing for me. It was just dung. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the hearer in this day would not say, okay, I just got to try harder than the scribes and Pharisees. First of all, that would be impossible in their mindset. But Jesus has already established in 3 through 16, what again is the standard? Absolute perfection. And so, what he has here when he says, unless it exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, the point is not you need to try to be better than the scribes and Pharisees. What he's saying is your teachers are condemned. Your teachers of the law are condemned. Your examples with regard to obedience to the law are condemned. No one escapes. No one. Anywhere. Escape. And that's the text for this morning. It's not exactly a feel-good message, is it? Painful message. The, the Sermon on the Mount is a very painful message. If, if I could describe it this way, what you find in the Sermon on the Mount is this. What we are observing now in the Sermon on the Mount is this. And you've heard me say it before. The Gospel means what? Good news. Right? It means good news. And it is the only good news, isn't it? The Gospel. Good news. Jesus is presenting the Gospel of the Kingdom of Heaven. That's what He's doing. And for three chapters, for the most part, the kingdom of heaven gospel that Jesus gives, now he'll, he'll expand it, but it's what? Good news or bad news? It's really bad news. It's horrific news. It is horrifying news. Everything you banked on amounts to nothing. Everything you invested your life in accomplishes nothing for you. As a matter of fact, not only does it accomplish nothing for you, everything you invested your life in, everything you pursued, every focus you had, every everything serves to do only one thing. And that one thing it serves to do is to leave you absolutely condemned. That's a really offensive message. Isn't it? For three chapters, that's what Jesus is doing. Why? Because there is no good news if there's no bad news. There just isn't. There's no good news unless there's bad news. And the bad news that is presented too often in Christianity today is not biblical bad news. <laughs> it just isn't. It's glossed over. It's got icing on the cake it looks really you know palatable it's not undoing at all is it but the gospel that 
Jesus presents and the gospel that Peter presents and the gospel that Paul presents and the gospel that James presents and the gospel that John presents and the gospel that Jude presents. Every single time is absolutely filled up with something. And the thing it is filled up with is what? Bad news. Think about the Old Testament prophets. Did they give hope? Yeah, they did. They pointed to Christ. But the predominance of the Old Testament prophets was what? Bad news. Dark. Horrifying. Bad news. At the end of Joshua, Joshua speaks to the people and he does what? He gives them the Gospel. But it is what? Primarily bad news. You see it everywhere from Genesis 3 to the end of, well maybe not the end, but almost the end of the book of Revelation. What do you find? All the time. The predominant discussion is a discussion of Good news or bad news when it comes to unbelievers? Bad news! The only time the good news comes into play is once the bad news is understood by the Spirit in someone's life. And then the good news is brought in, isn't it? Peter, at the day of Pentecost, spent his whole time doing what? Preaching about Christ, yes, but from a bad news perspective. Didn't he? Didn't he? You killed him. You hated him. You rejected him. You cried out, crucify him. And you did crucify him. And it wasn't until the people started crying out because of the hopelessness that, they, that then Peter turned to what? The good news. Until that point in time, it was bad, bad. And what we find in the Sermon on the Mount is this very thing. So what do we do with this text? A couple things. I would argue that the Sermon on the Mount, the value of the Sermon on the Mount is twofold. It is number one. We desperately, even as believers, need to be reminded of the bad news. You realize that? Peter got it. I'm sorry, Paul got it, didn't he? Romans chapter 7. Did he understand the bad news? The very things that I should do, what? I don't do. And the very things I shouldn't do, those the very things I do. And what's his next statement? Oh, wretched man that I am. Not that I was. Like a lot of Christians want to, want to make it be past tense. It's not. It's present tense. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free? That's what he says. Apostle Paul, who will set me free? And his next statement is, thanks, to be, thanks be to God in Christ Jesus. And then right after that, chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore... No condemnation to those who 
are in Christ Jesus. But even Paul, for as a believer, where is he camping? Firstly, bad news. And he's grieving over his bad news. And it's even worse bad news for a believer than an unbeliever, isn't it? Because for a believer who has had his sin atoned for, Christ's sacrifice has been applied to them. They've been made new. They've been given a new heart. It is absolutely bizarre that we would be what? Still embracing sin. After receiving what a great gift we've received. How much grieving should be there? How much brokenness should be there? You and I still need the bad news. You see, I, I'm sure, am very unique and not like you at all. For me, most times I think I'm doing pretty well. I'm sure it's not like you at all. Hope you detect sarcasm there. Most times I think I'm doing pretty well. Most times I think I, I've got this Christianity thing pretty well dialed in. If you don't believe it, just ask me. And I'll tell you. And you know when I'm reminded that I don't have it dialed in? When I read things like the Sermon on the Mount. When I read things like Romans chapter 7. When I'm reminded of the bad news of the Gospel. And then I'm reminded that God's standards don't, don't change. They never have, they never will. You realize that? Not until the heavens and earth pass away. God's standards never change. What does that mean? Bad news. Bad news, because today, I read through 5, 3 through 16, and guess what? I'm not in a position to be blessed. No matter how hard I tried today at whatever time it is, 11.15 or so. I've earned nothing. I've accomplished nothing. I have nothing in me to hope. Nothing. You realize that? Nor do you. that we woke up this morning was purely and simply the mercy of God. Not because we ran so well yesterday. But when I remember the bad news of the gospel, even as a believer, you know that rushes me off to, to remember? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free? And it causes me to rush off and remember the thing that an unbeliever cannot remember. And that is thanks be to God in Christ Jesus. Because he stood in my place. And he remains in my place. And he put me in his place. And he makes me remain in his place. And he gives me his righteousness. And his righteousness remains with me. And I'm reminded of the mercy of God. I'm not under condemnation. Which brings me to worship which brings me to hope in Him.
which brings me to long for him, which brings me to love him, which brings me to worship him, which brings me to want more of him. which ultimately brings me, and I'll explain in a few minutes, to follow him. But to an unbeliever, they also desperately need the bad news. They absolutely need the bad news. We have so thoroughly corrupted the gospel today. The gospel too often is preached from a generic bad news to a specific good news. But that's not what the biblical structure is. Do you get the sense in chapter 5 that the bad news is very specific? It's very targeted and it's very, very painful. And it brings a person to hopelessness. When I read, for example, the gospel as presented by Jesus in chapter 5, verses 3 through 16, and what he's going to do continuing, and even, even 17 through 20, I understand. It makes sense to me that Paul would be hated for preaching the gospel. It really makes sense. Because that gospel would be very offensive, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? I mean, I'm going to change it. I'm, I'm going to use you as an illustration, Ken. Let's say you're a woodworker, but you're a cabinet maker, but you don't work for yourself. You work for somebody else. You're an employee. <clears throat> How would it be if everything you do, everything you build, every cut you made, your boss tells you all the time, repeatedly, it's wrong, and you failed? Every time. Think they wear, out, wear you out after a little bit? Would it make you angry? You think it would take a little while? You think, you think it would take you 10 years to get angry? Five years? Yeah, 10 minutes. Does that make sense to everybody? Of course it makes sense to everybody. And eventually you'd hate them. Wouldn't you? Especially when you think the cuts are good and right. And the joints are glued correctly. And you think it's great. And your boss says, no, you failed again. And he grabs your cabinet and throws it in the trash. You're going to hate him real quick. And eventually you're going to despise him, aren't you? And eventually you're going to walk away from him, aren't you? And you're probably at least going to verbally assassinate him, aren't you? Starting to make a little sense? The gospel's a, a, rock, a rock of stumbling, right? A stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Isn't he? Isn't Jesus? absolutely is. The gospel is of Jesus Christ. We are so terrified today of offending people. We are so terrified today of people hating us. For Paul, he just goes in and does what? Yeah. Peter does the same thing, doesn't he? He declares the gospel and it's offensive. Jesus himself is offensive, but the bad news of the gospel is offensive as well, isn't it? It's absolutely offensive. It needs to be. Is any wonder how many people, quote, come to faith in Jesus Christ 
and never evidence anything, never grow in Christ, never show any real change that the life should show according to the Scriptures, I argue, I suspect most of that's because the Gospel He gave was so grotesquely and fatally truncated that it was no longer the Gospel. The Gospel is loaded with bad news. And it's only until by the Spirit one understands the bad news that the good news is good news. If the bad news really isn't bad news, then what's the good news? The good news is just a meh. Meh. Like, for example, if I told Charles, let me use an example, if I told Charles the good news of running, Charles' response would be, meh. Wouldn't you? totally meaningless to you. It would be totally meaningless to him because he doesn't run. He has no interest in running at all. But if there was some form of bad news that I could give him that absolutely applied to him unless he ran, suddenly, after he understood the bad news, then the good news would what? It would be good news. If the bad news absolutely applied to him and it was absolutely life-condemning, you're doomed. Then the running would be good news, wouldn't it? The information about running would be good news. That makes sense to us, doesn't it? I don't have that, sec- that first part, the bad news for him. And so the good, the, what I would describe as good news, running, it, it's not good news to him at all. It's, meh. Whatever. And so what we do is we add a few carrots to make someone... Take it. But it's all manipulation. That's what it is. If I may use the running, because the Scriptures use running analogies all the time, so if I may use the running analogy, if I somehow could hang some carrots in front of him to get him to run for a little bit, guess how long he's going to run for? A week? Two weeks? I'm just throwing best case scenario. You get the point. Now it's starting to sound like what? The parable of the four soils, isn't it? It's bad news. When it is robustly presented, the spirits at work in someone's life, Christ looks glorious. He looks absolutely glorious. So for an unbeliever, they need the bad news. And for the believer, we desperately need to hear the bad news. We need to hear the bad news of the gospel all the time. It gets really weird if we just hear the good news of the gospel because we're saved and we camp on this idea that we're going to heaven and Jesus loves me, yes, I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong. I don't remember the rest of it. Yeah, there you go. We are weak, but He is strong. And we camp on all this good news stuff. It ultimately becomes meaningless. It's just a little bonus perk. It's only when I understand my absolute desperation 
oh, wretched man that I am, that Christ is glorious. And that's by the Spirit. But at the same time, we who claim to be believers, friends, we desperately need to hear the bad news. Is it offensive to you and I to hear the bad news? That's the crazy thing. It shouldn't be. But you know what? It is. It is. I don't want to talk about the bad news anymore because it doesn't apply to me. Yes, it does. You know how I know that? Because the Bible says, he who perseveres till when? The end will be saved. That will be the evidence that someone truly is saved. Can I just say, I know we're over time, but they're not coming up here anymore, so I'm just going to continue here for one more second. It's just an intro, a brief intro. Let me just say, what do we do with the law? Because what we want to do is we want to answer, what about the law for a believer? You know, if Jesus fulfilled the law, and he did, right? It is fulfilled, then how do we approach the law today? That's a great question. Is it no longer, is it now dismantled? The scripture is clear, right? It's not dismantled. He said he wasn't going to dismantle it. Not till heaven and earth pass away. So what's the point of the law for a believer? Well, it's twofold. On the one hand, it still shows us we need him, right? Because I'm still not perfectly keeping it, right? So therefore, I need it. I need his standard to remind me that I still need Jesus today. But secondly, at the same time, the Bible tells us that when we receive the bad news of the gospel and then follow up because the Spirit's at work in our lives, breaking our hearts, destroying us, which is what He does. And we cry out, what must I do to be saved? Sound familiar? The good news comes, doesn't it? And the result is by the Spirit we do what? Repent and believe. Is that correct? And when we repent and believe, what begins to happen in our hearts? Remember, we've been given a new heart, right? He changes us, doesn't He? He changes to the very core of our being, right to our very minds we are changed people. I describe it as changed and changing because we'll always be changing until till we go home and be, be, uh, and be glorified by the Spirit. But because He changes us, what begins to happen in the believer's life? We start, Colossians 3.1, we seek the things, 1-3, through 3, we seek the things which are above. And we... <clears throat> I don't want to. <clears throat> I don't want to cough into the microphone. <clears throat> we start to seek the things are, which are above. We start to set our minds on things above, which is what the command is there. But why would we do that? Why would we do that? Because we've been made alive, and the Spirit's at work in our lives. But the simple matter of fact is, what is he talking about? Seeking the things that are above and setting our minds on things above. What is he talking about? He's talking about seeking the things that, and setting our minds on the things that glorify. God. But could I ask you a quick question? <clears throat> Do you know innately within you, even as a believer, what glorifies God? No. You do not. Nor do I. We don't have a clue. You see, what begins to happen is as the Spirit changes us, we begin to love the person we once hated. When you love someone, you, what is one of the things you want to do when you love someone? <clears throat> You want to express it, correct? You desire to express it because you love them. 
Now, when it comes to my wife and I, she's a finite being, I'm a finite being, so we're kind of the same, aren't we? I know we're different in a lot of ways, but we're the same more than we are different, aren't we? Both humans. And so when I'm, I love my wife, I'm trying to figure out how to love my wife and how to express that love for her, I can kind of figure that out. Imperfectly, but I can kind of figure that out, can't I? Does that make sense? I can kind of figure that out, and I express my love for her, and sometimes she's like, swing and a miss, Steve. Right? And I learn, and so I adjust it, and I figure some other things out, and it's like, home run. That's a bonus, isn't it? The reason why I can do that with my wife is because we're the same. When it comes to God, we're not the same, are we? Oh, Jesus is human, right? 100% human. I'm 100% human. I'm fallen. He's not. That gets a little more complicated. But he's also 100% God. I'm, not, I'm zero. Does that make sense? I'm zero. And we can go from there. I'm finite. He's infinite. He's omnipresent. I'm just here. He's omniscient. Not this guy. Right? He's completely holy. I have an alien holiness. But myself, no, not even close. Chapter 5, verses 3 through 16. So, as I receive the love of Christ, because we love because he first loved us, as I receive the love of Christ... I will naturally, or supernaturally, because he's made me new, I will want to what? Express my love for him. Right? I will desire to, to respond to his love by loving him. Right? I don't have a clue what he loves. I don't have a clue how to express that love. I don't. Don't have the first clue. And so what happens? The pressure to love Christ, to express my love for God, it builds and it builds because the Spirit's at work. Right? And He's given me a holy love for Him. I don't have a clue how to express it. And so you know what I do? I turn to the Scriptures. And when I turn to the Scriptures, one of the things I discover is firstly and most importantly, the Scriptures tell us who Jesus is, doesn't it? It tells, them who, it tells us who God is. Our Trinitarian God we worship, it tells us who He is. It reveals to us, the Scriptures reveal to you and I exactly who He is that He wants us to know. But then it's in light of those truths of who He is that He's revealed to us that He then, even in the New Testament, gives us law, doesn't He? Chapters 1 through 11 of Romans, he tells us this is who he is and what he's accomplished. Is that what 1 through 11 does? How he thinks about things. What his view of salvation is. What is sin and all the rest. They're in 1 through 11. But when you get to 12, everything changes. From 12 through 16, you get what? You get law. Don't be this way. Don't be that way. Don't be this other way. Be this way. Be this way, think that way, talk this way, do this and do this and do this and do this and don't do that and don't do that and don't do that. But you know what the difference is? For the believer who's been forgiven, 
who's, been in Christ, who's now placed in Christ's place and has His righteousness and has a new heart, the law no longer is, is functioning as a taskmaster to show that you're condemned. Why? Because you're not condemned. Because the wrath of God was satisfied there on the tree. Correct? And so as a result, the law no longer condemns, but instead, the law is saying, and it's now God's graciousness to you and I, saying, this is who I am, and this is a great way to express your love for me. These are phenomenal ways that will please me, even in all the imperfections of ways in which you'll do them. These will please me. It blows my mind that they please him because I do them so imperfectly. But because I'm in Christ, even all my imperfect ways are somehow pleasing to him. That's how merciful he is, by the way. That is how merciful he is to you and I. And so now, no longer is it condemning us, but instead it is, I am set free to do what? To glorify God by loving him who first loved me. That's the purpose of the law for us today. And it changes everything. We desperately need to hear the bad news of the, law, of, of, of the gospel because it shows us how absolutely glorious the good news of the gospel is. Amen? Let's enjoy the gospel together. Let's pray. Lord, help us. <clears throat> when it comes to unsaved people, we so desperately want to be accepted that we corrupt even the good news, the bad news of the gospel, and as a result, we even corrupt the good news of the gospel. We don't fear you, we fear people. So Lord, I pray that you will help us as believers to be reminded of the gospel, reminded of the bad news as well as the good news of the gospel. Because we are easily self-deceived as well. Help us to remember we bring nothing to the table but our sin and everything else you brought and continue to bring for your glory. So cause us to revel in what you've accomplished. Teach us what it means to love the one who first loved us. And help us to enjoy you as a result. In your name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing, shall we?